Okay, so the 57 mod, I, I think it's I think it's just called the tape op mod. You just remove the transformer. So you solder the pins directly to the capsule. To do this, you have to detach the capsule and desolder those contacts. And then you boil the barrel to soften the glue up. If you've ever looked inside of a 57. Boil the barrel, that, sounds, that just sounds cool. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Today's episode of Recording Studio Rockstars is sponsored by Roswell Pro Audio, maker of handcrafted microphones in California. Inspired design and impeccable attention to detail will help you capture a gorgeous vintage sound without the vintage price tag. Check out their beautiful line of microphones at roswellproaudio.com. You may already know that using true analog gear is one of the best ways to create a great record. Yet increasingly, we live in a digital world, recording and mixing inside the computer. So what if you could have the best of both worlds? Tegeler Audio Manufacturer is bridging the analog-digital divide by creating high-end analog gear like the Schwerkraft Maschine compressor and the Raumzeitmaschine reverb whose knobs you can control remotely using a plug-in in your DAW. Or their many analog units like the Cream bus compressor with mastering EQ or the VeriTube recording channel that let you save your settings using a custom recall sheet plugin, offering a complete line of pro audio gear from compressors to EQs to reverbs and beyond. Now you can get a pro analog sound while benefiting from the power of digital. Let your DAW help you move your knobs so that your music can move you. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about Tegeler Audio Manufactor. Hey, Rockstars, it's your host, Lid Shaw, and welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Eric Taft, a producer, engineer, and multi-talented musician working from the Buzz Lounge studio outside of Baltimore, Maryland. Eric has spent a decade learning from many talented producers and engineers and currently works alongside Matt Squire with artists such as Under Oath and Plain White Tees. He also plays guitar and sings for the Great Heights Band out of Baltimore and produced the band's latest release, Rad Pop. The band has a super tight, punchy sound that makes me think of modern skater pop, old school DC punk, and Weezer, sort of the things that it reminds me of a little bit. And... Uh, Eric has spent years writing, recording, collaborating, and performing with other musicians of all backgrounds, and that's helped give him the experience required to be an effective producer in the studio. He's also produced a ton of videos of both originals and covers, creating a steady stream of content for his own band and the Buzz Lounge YouTube channel. Today, we're going to dig into some questions about recording, editing, and mixing, tight, powerful pop music and also how to grow your studio business through smart use of promotion and content creation. Please welcome Eric Taft to Recording Studio Rockstars. Eric, are you ready to rock? Oh yeah, I'm ready. Dude, it's nice to have you on the show, man. It was great to meet you. Um, Rockstars, uh, Eric is a guest who I've only just met, so this is kind of always fun for me to meet somebody for, kind of for the first time and, and really get to know him through the podcast too. So welcome, dude. 
Thank you so much, man. Yeah, it's funny. I think, uh, you know, engineers are always meeting each other for the first time all the time. But I think that there's like this unspoken understanding that we all kind of have, you know, where, you know, you and I just met five minutes ago, but I, you know, super comfortable, feel like we've known each other for quite a bit. So. Dude, we're all struggling with the same thing. Just trying to make great records, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, so give us a little bit of background of, of who you are. You know, I gave a, a bit of an intro, but tell us in your own words how you got into this recording thing. Yeah, sure. So um, in high school, I played in bands and I just never wanted to. I'd done the, you know, like, let's shell out a bunch of money and go to a local recording studio. Thank you for doing that, I, by the way. What's that? Thank you for as a local recording studio. Thank you so much for doing that, by the way. Yeah, of course. But I, you know, I, we had, uh, in particular had had not so great experiences and, uh, I kind of felt like I could do it better myself. And, um, so, you know, I started, I, you know, I had got, got a laptop, started using audacity and, you know, bought a oh, little wow. mixer and started working with whatever I could and, uh, found that I couldn't do it better at first. And, um, but I just, I loved it. I loved the, you know, stacking parts. I love the first, I remember the first time I doubled a guitar track and I was like, oh my God, that sounds amazing. Yeah. So I just, I fell in love with the whole um, art of layering and stacking and stuff. And then, you know, slowly increased, uh, I did a lot of work in Audacity before I even that's, started. That's remarkable for me to hear because I've messed with Audacity a little bit and I found it oh, it's utterly mind-boggling. It is terrible. Oh my God. Like for any kind of editing to nudge anything, you you have to insert silence. It's oh, yeah. terrible. <laughs> yeah. Like to nudge, it's so bad. Can you actually anyway, overdub in it? Um, You have to, if you want to overdub, you have to create a new track every time. Wow. It's terrible. It's the worst. Um. <laughs> Yeah, but then, uh, so I went to UMBC, which is the University of Maryland, Baltimore County in Baltimore. They have a really, really great, uh, it's a music major, but with an emphasis in music technology. So I was taking re recording classes and learning all about the studio and the ins and outs of that. And But then also taking theory and I was in a choir and I had to take piano classes. And I, so I was getting a really well-rounded music education, um, which I feel really helped um, the production aspect of my work. I mean, yeah. you know, I think especially in 2018, you can learn so much about production and recording and creating through even just YouTube tutorials and, or podcasts or whatever. Mm -hmm. But what really is going to set a great producer apart from, you know, the, the bedroom producer is a fantastic background in music and understanding harmony and understanding arrangement and all that. So I got uh, got my start there. Um, I was able to, their music technology program was really great. You could book the studio 24 hours a day as long as it wasn't already booked by another student. So I just started bringing bands in and making really rough sounding records, but learning every step of the way. And then uh, slowly was able to acquire another studio space outside of my school and kind of just built up from there, you know, started uh, buying gear on eBay and was mixing records in my dorm room and was getting a bunch of noise complaints from other people living in the halls. And yeah, yeah. it was, you know, it just, I started out in college and then it just grew from there. Um, so let me ask you a tough question. When you were doing the college thing and you were studying music, 
did you grapple with sort of the, the larger question of like, you know, is this a, a smart career move? Can I survive if I go into a life of making music? Any of those questions? Did you have to deal with that stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the school that I went to is um, really well known for being a STEM school. STEM is science, technology, engineering, and math is what that stands for. And so to, to uh, be Unlike a, the STEMs we have to deal with these days. <laughs> right, yeah, 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 totally different kinds of STEMs. So, uh, you know, to be an arts major in a school like that, I mean, all all I heard was, oh, like, good job, or good luck getting a, you know, sustainable career, or good luck, you know, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll see you working at McDonald's and all that kind of crap. Like, I heard it all. And, um... But yeah, I think because I was in school, um, at least in this program that allowed me to work in the studio, I, I kind of shut all that out and just spent even more time in the studio and just really like spent all my free time trying to find bands, trying to bring them in. And slowly but surely, I saw all of my records start to sound better and better and better and better and better. And, better. and then yeah. I could, and you know, it started out, I was charging. 50, 100 bucks a song, whatever. And then just doing it over and over and over again. It like, I think what really excited me was that I noticed I was getting better. So I saw, you know, I, I can do this, I can make it happen. And then my senior year, I had a studio um, that was, let's see, it was about 45 minutes from school. So my schedule was I would go to class until 4 p.m., get out, drive 45 minutes to an hour to the studio have a session from five to midnight, whatever, and then drive to Baltimore city where I was living, have to, you know, find a parking spot, like a mile away from my house, walk <laughs> then and do it all over again, day after day, after day, after day. But I was in a situation where, um, the space I was in, they weren't charging me rent. I was just giving them a cut of everything I made, which was, it kept me, I didn't have a whole lot of pressure to consistently be bringing in bands i could focus on school and pay them you know what i made when i only when i was working and mm -hmm. it was it, it really uh i don't know it made for a really great that was like the most um what am i trying to say that that was like a very comforting way to kind of slowly start the career and ease into the whole, like, I could do this. I could totally do this. Yeah. Um, not have so much pressure that, that you felt like you would just crash and burn if something yeah, didn't absolutely. go well. Yeah, absolutely. And then when I graduated, a friend of mine was moving out of the studio space that uh, currently houses Buzz Lounge. And uh, I had never, you know, considered a monthly rent on a place. And I was just like, I don't know if I could do that. And then the first month that I, after I moved in the first month I had paid all my bills doing just music. I was like, Oh crap, I'm doing it. This is it. This is, I'm in it. You know, wow. I, like, so I, I, I think, um, I had a pretty low risk start in terms of my overhead, you know? Um, and that just helped me gain the traction I needed to build up to a point where, you know, I could pay a rent for a studio space. I could, had a client base, I had a reputation already built and, but it was, uh, it was something that I had built at pretty low risk from the start, which was, I thought helpful. Well, that's cool, man. I like hearing that. And, um, I dig the fact that you were willing to just go for music, you know, in the face of all these high dollar tech opportunities that sort of surrounded you. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, definitely, uh, I know like a lot of, when you're in college, a lot of people's parents are like sweating bullets that you're not going to end up in a career that, you know, makes X amount of dollars or whatever. And my, I was really thankful my mom was incredibly supportive of me and, you know, saw that I was passionate about what I'm doing. And I think that, I mean, it's, it sounds so cliche, but if you are passionate about what you're doing, you're going to do it the best that you can. And I think that's why engineering and producing is such a competitive field because everyone is so driven and so passionate because it's the best job in the world. So it's, yeah. Well, and I, so another question I want to ask you is obviously I've spoken to a lot of people that are, you know, moved to a music hub like Nashville or, or Los Angeles, and you have sort of built and grown your career out of Baltimore, Maryland, between Baltimore and DC. Talk a little bit about that for you. You know, how do you feel about not being in, you know, a place that people call a music hub and maybe also fill us in a little bit on what the music scene is like in that part of uh, the East Coast there. Yeah, absolutely. I So I've thought a lot about, you know, should my career move me to LA or Nashville or anywhere where it's, like you said, more of a hub. But I think what we've got here is like, it's, it's kind of more of a niche thing. It's easier to stand out um, if you're doing exceptional work and you're building your reputation. It's there's a lot less competition, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's, it's such a smaller tight knit scene. Um, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like I go out to a show in Baltimore and I know just about everybody there, which is great. Um, it could be limiting, I guess, but the, the, there's always different bands growing. There's always new things coming about. So, well, you know, it's possible that another variation too is when you're in a place that's a music hub, uh, let's say you're in Los Angeles or, or New York or something like that. Maybe you are working with artists and maybe the money that pays for the sessions, for example, flows down from, um, you know, management and record label level or publishing company and things like that. Um, and I'm speculating here. Whereas if you're in a smaller, uh, you know, um, local music scene, maybe it's just the artists themselves that are directly funding their projects. Yeah. Um, can you comment on that a little bit? What is your experience like working with people when they're sort of paying for their own passions? I mean, there's absolutely a different level of investment in it. I mean, I don't want to say that artists that are funded by labels or management don't have that same investment, but, um, when you've got a you know a group of musicians that have pooled together savings to go go into the studio and make a record, there's a whole other different level of like okay we are investing in our own product in our own future in our own music they're betting on themselves you know yeah. so so one I feel incredibly honored that a band takes that leap and that element of trust in me as a producer and engineer. But it's it's it says so much about them and their commitment to their craft. Yeah, totally. And and I think that when things go well and you see the band's face light up at the results of what's happening, I think that's a really good feeling when you're the engineer, oh, it's or the producer, or in studio. You know. Yeah, it's amazing. It's such a great feeling. So, Eric, I like to ask guests to kind of share an inspirational quote to kick off the podcast. If you get anything uh -huh. you want to share with us, just get us excited about hitting the studio. Yeah, uh, my my mantra has always been it's all about the song. You know, I think production yeah. production is it's a nice it's a nicety. You know, you can 
you have a great song and then production is the, what takes it to a hundred percent. You know, that's the getting the right kick drum sound. What loops are you going to, are you going to put any loops in? Like all that kind of stuff that's going to beef it up. But if you strip all that stuff away and you just have acoustic guitar, a vocal, it should still be an amazing song. So I think I always try to carry that with me. Like, okay, if we took away all this crap that gets us all excited, is the song still awesome? And if it's not work on it, fix it. Yeah. Um, I think that's a great thing to remember. I think it's really important. Sometimes I like to flip that around on its head too and go like, all right, let's take a great Beatles song. I could probably play a crappy version of it for you. So you might, <laughs> you might forget how great a song it is, but, uh, but maybe that song would shine through my version as well. But, um, but I would say that, you know, if, for example, hypothetically you're working with, um, amateur bands, self-taught bands that are coming sort of out of, um, out of their own communities and they haven't been around great songwriters and, and other, uh, you know, like in, in a place like Nashville, of course, there's a huge respect for the song and people might start with an understanding of that. But if you're working with bands that are sort of coming through with their own thing, I find that sometimes you see people getting in their own way with, you know, instrumentally, um, musically. I know I did as a musician starting out. Uh, I didn't really know the power of silence in, in playing oh, a part. Absolutely. You know? So yeah. maybe you can talk a little bit about that. You know, what are some things you've learned about uh, the kind of obstacles that bands bring with them and what it means for you to help them understand their song a little better? Yeah. So actually that reminds me of, there was one record I was doing and I went to a band's practice space to do pre-production with them. And uh, I showed up, it was just me and a pad of paper and an acoustic guitar. And they were like, do you need help bringing in your mics, your stuff? And I was like, no, we're not doing any of that. Like, we're just gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna bang out your songs. Like, that's what I'm focused on. And they were just like, like mind blown. <laughs> they just didn't, <laughs> couldn't grasp that concept. They were like, you know, I, I don't, you know, the, obviously grooves are important. All that stuff is important, but I just want to make sure that your chord progressions and your melodies are great and your structures are what they need to be. Um, and I, so I think, yeah, I think you're on a local level. It's not necessarily something that gets considered right away. I think, um, you know, people start jamming together and they get really stoked about a guitar part or a sound yeah. and don't get me wrong. Like that's, Guitar riffs and parts like that can be just as much an element of the song as a vocal, but um, I think it, it, that's definitely something that takes time to learn. You know, it's not something that you right out the gate think um, if you're going to start a band, you're like in a garage or whatever. Your first instinct is not to be, oh, let's take all of the fun stuff out and then just focus on the acoustic guitar and vocal because you want to yeah. jam, you want you want to play loud, you want to. Yeah. Do all the exciting stuff because our singers, our singer's ego isn't big enough already. Let's just right. focus a hundred percent on them, <laughs> right? <laughs> but you know, let's not also forget that uh, all the stuff, the super fun guitar riffs and the jamminess, uh, even though they can become obstacles sometimes in our production towards really getting the song right, they are the things that fundamentally drive us all as musicians to be in that band in the first place and and you oh, know, arrive at the studio. So they're super valuable. Absolutely. I mean, that's what gives uh, band to band. That's what gives them their flavor. You know, that's what you can hear a Chili Peppers song and be like, oh, that's John Frusciante because you can just tell, you know, you can yeah. hear his, you can hear his guitar tone from a mile away and just be like, oh, it's Frusciante. That's cool. um, or it's, you know, so yeah. 
Um, dig it, man. Well, so uh, how about let's jump into some some more specific stuff about things you you've done through your studio. Um, you're talking about starting out Buzz Lounge, you know, taking on this this leap of faith challenge of taking on the the monthly rent and the bills and stuff. You know, can can you make it? I've certainly had a lot of conversations with the rock stars listening to this podcast who ask me questions like, you know, they want to they want to sort of take a leap of faith to start recording. Uh, many people just want to do it for fun, and and that's wonderful. I still just want to do it for fun, but uh, a lot of people want to do it as sort of a, um, you know, and uh, a way to to have it fund itself, if not actually pay their own bills as well. So maybe talk about that some more, and maybe specifically tell us the stories behind you know the series of videos that you did doing covers. And what that was all about, you know, I imagine that had something to do with trying to sort of grow your presence as a studio and grow your awareness and build an audience around um, your YouTube channel. So um, give us some insight into how we could do that with our own studios. Yeah, absolutely. So um, when I was in college, I started, like you said, doing a series of YouTube covers with my roommate. Um, We would take, you know, classic 2000s era turn of the millennium pop songs and reimagine them into kind of a pop punk style and you know this was seven or eight years ago and now it's that's such a popular thing that bands do and i think that um it's all about creating content and it's all about not necessarily you know the average listener doesn't necessarily care that you as a producer have a studio and you do this and that and this and that but you need to give them a reason to care so it's like yeah i have a studio blah 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 but check out this awesome thing I created in my studio that you can relate to, that you can get excited about. You know, so we we did that for a while. And then he and I actually, um, his name was Matt, uh, Matt Nepomuceno. I actually haven't heard from him in quite a bit. But um, <laughs> Shout out but to yeah, you, Matt. Say hello. <laughs> yeah, Matt, wherever you are, I miss you. Um, but yeah, so we actually, you know, co-produced a couple records together because people recognized us from you know we'd go out to a show in baltimore and bands would be like oh man you're matt and eric you did that cover of vanessa carlton a thousand miles like i love like bands were covering our versions of those songs and like that's cool it it was pretty cool i mean it's it's silly when you look back it's just like oh it's just it's covers and that's cool but i definitely got a lot of work and a lot of uh notoriety as an arranger Mm -hmm. of I mean, I kind of got uh, pigeonholed as the pop punk producer in Maryland for a, a, a year or two. And that's great. I mean, I, I like that kind of music and it's fun to do. And the bands are always really fun to work with. But um, I like that term pop punk. So I think in the intro, I just I was like reaching for a term and I said like modern skater pop. I don't even know what that means. But I think pop <laughs> punk is what I was looking for right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, well, th- well, that's groovy. And, you know, I feel like studying covers too, it's a version of, of homework for us. You know, I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but you know, if you go to fine art school and you're going to study oil painting, if you live in a city where there's a fine art museum, they send you to the museum to go set up a canvas and sit there and copy and duplicate these classic works of art. And I feel like that's what that YouTube cover thing is a version of. It's like a way for you to say, Hey, I'm going to recreate this thing, learn it, understand it better. And it probably gets people who see it excited about that sound. And then they are like, man, I want my record to go sound like that. 
Absolutely. And especially from a songwriting standpoint, you know, if you, uh, I play, I also play in another band called party like it's, and it's from, we're from DC and we do, it's, uh, rooted in ska and reggae, but we do covers of top 40 songs. Um, so we also do the YouTube cover thing as well. And I feel like learning songs that have, you know, been written by the most masterful songwriters and learning those songs over and over and over and over again, help you, you, you start to pick up on patterns of like, Oh, all these great songs that I've learned, they all have this in common or they all have that in common. And then so when you sit down to try and write a song, you kind of, I think, subconsciously carry that with you. And you're like, OK, so I need to maybe I should try structuring my song this way because all of these other great songs have done it. And I think you kind of subconsciously take on the patterns of popular music and popular songs through learning, you know, your repertoire of covers. Yeah, totally. Um, what about some of the challenges when you're producing this YouTube content of connecting with the audience that might actually work with you in the studio? Did you ever feel like there was a, a potential disconnect between creating something that is uh, that reaches out globally versus wanting to reach people locally? Or is that sort of a non-issue? Um, I w well, I wouldn't say it's a non-issue. It's not something I explicitly uh, concerned myself with, but I think um, the, uh, there was a band I was in in Baltimore called The Old Line, and I did the same thing with The Great Heights Band. I, I self-produced our record. We did the whole thing, and the whole my whole thought process was, okay, we will I'll make our record. It'll sound awesome, and then we'll start playing shows, and we'll start networking with other bands on the bills. We'll start touring. We'll start doing X, Y, Z, and that was also a very organic way to establish this camaraderie with other bands and get to know them first as a musician, and then also I do this with Great Heights Band all the time. It's like people will be like, "Oh man, we love playing with you guys. You guys are super cool. You guys, we love your songs." Blah blah blah, and then it's. Cool. Well, you know, I also run a studio. If you guys are ever in town, if you're ever in Baltimore or DC, come to the studio, come hang, blah, blah, blah. And then I, I kind of, it's a, that for me is a much more organic way to build the relationship of, oh, that guy from the Great Heights Band, he also makes records. Mm -hmm. And it, it kind of humanizes myself. And I think that makes it, I don't, I don't ever want to create like a, an image where, you know, Eric Taft is this amazing producer because that's not the thing. I'm just a guy and I make records and I love doing it. So, you know, I, I don't want to, I want to just be relatable and I want to um, get to know people on that level because yeah, I'm a musician yeah. and I play in bands and I want, um, like when I started my studio, I, I adopted the, I, I rarely do hourly things. I, tr I try to do project rate and I try to, um, understand as much as possible where bands are coming from with their budgets because I've been there. And yeah. I think, I do, think, do you uh, find that local musicians and, and local bands tend to think that way too? Are you trying to match the way they think about budgeting and making a record? I think so. I mean, I think if, because, you know, if I'm in a band today and I, I just want to know, okay, what is the amount that we're spending? How much do I need to set aside? Because if it's an hourly thing, it can just be this open ended process and it's kind of an unknown. And, um, I, especially in 2018 where all the information is made available right at your fingertips. If there isn't, if there's an element of unknown, I feel like some bands might not even reach out, um, right. in the first place. So it's kind of, 
it's helpful to just be kind of transparent. And I, I like to work as efficiently as possible when working with my own clients as well, just because if we're doing flat rate, after a certain point, I could just start losing money. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So, so maybe share a little insight with the rock stars about that. I mean, what are some things that they need to watch out for if they do choose to do flat rates with with bands and artists? Uh, be realistic. I always ask for uh, demos from your practice space up front. If you're, you know, hey, we've been working on a record where we really want to cut an EP. Great, that's awesome. Can you send me? even phone recordings from your practice space. Cause then if I, if I can hear them play and if they're killing it, I, I know that I'm not going to spend forever on drum editing. I know that, you know, if their guitar players can play, I know I'm going to spend less time editing. If their singers can sing, I'm going to spend less time getting a million takes, you know? Um, if the practice recordings are a little rougher, then I, I take that into account when I'm quoting and I don't, I don't think that's an unfair thing. I think it's, I'm being realistic with the amount of time that I think I need to spend on it. Mm -hmm. And that kind of helps me, uh, not that, that helps me to avoid charging hourly and having this element, this element, this unknown X factor of, you know, bands enter the studio. And if I take longer to edit a drum track and they start keeping their eye on the clock and they're sweating about how much time I'm spending making their record sound great, then it just becomes an uncomfortable situation that I don't want to be in. Right. So, so if, I mean, at the end of the day, it could end up uh, costing the same amount of money, but if it's an hourly thing, they think they're going to be in and out in however much time. And I have a realistic expectation of my standard of work and where, how much time I need to spend on X, Y, Z um, yeah. And so I imagine that, that your understanding of your own time needs comes from experience. Um, do you find yourself, do you find yourself now still running up against some things where you're like, I don't know exactly how to predict how long this thing is going to take me. And do you have any thoughts about how you uh, make decisions around that? Yeah. I mean, sometimes the, uh, demos that are sent to me can be deceiving or sometimes they, uh, deceiving demos. Yeah. Um, or sometimes, I mean, even bands are great at, uh, you know, if you have a laptop, you can cut your own demos at home yeah. for, and, and the technology is amazing. Um, so sometimes things like that can be a little misleading and I just, I'm confident enough in my own, uh, abilities with, as far as editing goes and, um, I just try to not, I try to be realistic and not spend too much time on things that if I feel that something's taking a lot of time, um, I might, you know, suggest someone else play a part or, you know, and those, those are not, um, comfortable conversations to have, especially with inexperienced local level bands, you know, like maybe the lead guitar player should play the rhythm part if the rhythm guitar player is having a tough time nailing a, th a thing. And I, I don't know, I try to adopt and instill the mentality that the recording studio is not really a place for ego. It's all about making the song the best it can be and making the recording sound as great as it can. So yeah. if, you know, I've, I've had it a million times and it's less, it's less frequent now as I've been, uh, you know, working with more bands with Matt and bands that are a little more well-versed in, uh, studio world. But I definitely, when I was working with lower level local bands, um, would, would encounter that all the time. And it's like, 
look, you, you know, we're not doing hourly. I, if we were doing hourly, I would gladly let your rhythm player try a million takes. But the fact of the matter is, you know, we're not doing that. I don't, you know, if, if I can play the part better or if another person in your band can play the part better, like, you know, right. You budgeted time to knock the part out efficiently, not spend a day necessarily, um, giving somebody guitar lessons. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Um, or, you know, or maybe you have a discussion with the band and you, you just find out how important it is that for them to have each member play their parts. And then it's like, okay, well, let's just make sure we've got a day. Yeah, for absolutely. This one overdub, I've, you know, and I've, I've done that and I've, um, I've learned and I've lost money doing that. Or I've, <laughs> or I've also, you know, been realistic with the band. And if, if that's what they want to do, I've, you know, sent bands home on some occasions and be like, look, I understand that you guys want to want to play everything and that's great. You're not where you need to be in terms of practice. And, you know, and that, that's, I mean, it's a tough, it's like I said before, it's a tough conversation to have and no one likes to hear that, but I, I just, I'm not trying to be anyone's enemy. I just want to be realistic about the standards in the studio and I want to make bands as great as they can be. Have you found some (laughs) examples where, a band is always happier later if the track and song really sound as good as possible and you've had to, you know, maybe shuffle who's playing what around during the session. Or have you also found sometimes um, a track that is produced so well doesn't make the band so happy and they really just wish they they it kind of represented them playing it? No, I almost always feel like... If, if, it, if it is an instance where I've had to shuffle around who's playing what, or if, if even I have to play a lead part or something like that, I've always, almost always found that the band is happier with that. Um, because in the end it's for me, creating in the studio is about synergy and collaboration. Yeah. And it's so cool to look back and be like, Oh, remember when you did this part or like that thing that you did was amazing. And it's like, everyone feels really good because it's a collective effort. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, I don't know. In most cases, I feel like it's, it just helps the band get excited about the production that they're creating. And in some cases it might even be like, I write a lead part, I play it for them. And then, you know, show it to their guitar player and be like, all right, cool. Now you try to track it. And if either they can nail it or they can't. And if, if they don't get it in like 10 takes, then I'll just take it and track the guitar. And it's, but I don't want it to be like a, I'm not stepping on anyone's toes. I'm just like, this is a perfect guitar part for this part. And if we, you know, it's, it's for me, it's all about just nailing the song and it's, it's right. You got to As a producer, you've got to sort of follow your vision. You got to like, I mean, that's what your, that's your best offer is what you, what you can envision as being a great version of this song. Right. And I imagine that a band, you know, if it goes really well and it sounds great at the end and it gets played on local radio and gets into regular spins, the band's probably pretty happy about that. Yeah. I mean, at, at, at the end of the day, if it sounds worlds better than it would have sounded if we had gone in a, a different route it it's almost irrelevant how we got there it's just what matters is that you know it's great can, and that's i can barely remember how we, I, you know the details of how we made records you know last year a year before that year before that whatever you know it's it, those things get forgotten you just sort of remember the final thing yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, so um, tell us a little bit more about Buzz Lounge Studio, um, and I'll throw this question in. 
Um, I think I noticed that you're using Pro Tools, and I wanted to ask you if that's what you use. And I also saw that it looked like you maybe had a split screen setup. Maybe you can just talk about how you set up your studio for a great workflow, some of the ergonomics, you know, how you like to have your tools around you in the studio. Yeah, sure. So yeah, I, I am on Pro Tools. I actually just switched to uh, Pro Tools 12, which has been fantastic. It took me long enough to do, but I'm on it. Um, it's one better than 11, isn't it? It's one, yeah, it's definitely one louder. I'll tell you that. Exactly. Um, <laughs> um, I think the photo you saw of the split screen was, that was an older setup. Um, I have a 27-inch iMac screen uh, in here now, but it's funny. <laughs> So I switched to 11 on a laptop that uh, that I just got last year. And so currently that's what I'm running. I'm like, I think every Pro Tools user and every engineer can kind of uh, attest to how terrifying it is to upgrading your Pro Tools when oh, you've yeah. got when you've got just like session after session after like we've we've had record after record after record with like, you know, maybe downtime of one day. And so I don't want to risk uh, upgrading my primary computer and having that just not work. <laughs> yeah, I, I, think, I, just, I think the companies that make the software sometimes forget that. They forget that like, for any of us working professionally to upgrade, it's literally like booking a full record just to do the upgrade. You know, it's like... Yeah. Uh -huh. Like last time I, I replaced my system drive on this computer, it took me a week to rebuild everything and get something going and get it all back to yeah. working and install. I know. Well, especially I'd be switching from 10 to 12 on my studio computer. And so that would mean uh, all my RTAS plugins would go. So I'd have to, you know, download and install AAX replacements for everything. Mm -hmm. um, Rebuy plugins that don't have AAX versions or, or, you know, just like there's just so many things to consider. So I'm currently working on my laptop um, and I've just got adapters at the wazoo i had to buy this ridiculous uh thunderbolt 2 to thunderbolt 3 adapter to connect my apollo and it's been kind of a headache but it's the pro tools 12 system itself is just smooth as butter and you know offline bounce is amazing committing tracks is incredible like so yeah. ergonomic let's see you, you mentioned the ergonomics of my studio currently laptop is right in front of me i have a tc electronic level pilot just the big volume knob to my left. Okay. Um, on my desk, I have a, I have a, so PV came out with this line of guitar amps that, uh, they're recreations of their classic heads and, uh, but they're low watt versions with cab emulations and XLR outputs on them, which is pretty awesome. So I have this, uh, this little PV head that I've been using. We're in pre-production with a band right now. So we've been using this PV head XLR out rather than using amp models that are just going to bog down my CPU. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's been amazing. Um, I just I try to keep the studio tidy. We've got heads in here and guitars, and but I try to keep it as clean as possible just so it's, you know, you start the day and you want to create. And not, yeah. You know, not <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, I'm going to share another tip. I actually just um, watched a presentation from Craig Anderton, who's, He's sort of a legend in the audio industry. He's been writing books for decades, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and he did this really interesting demonstration of why you want, if you're going to use any virtual instruments, including virtual guitar amps, why you want to run your sessions at 96K. Because um, I don't know if I can get too deep into it, but essentially 
the plugins, since they're they're sort of theoretically perfect worlds, they generate overtones way up above 20k, and they, it goes so high it hits it reaches up into the clock frequencies of the computer, and it, and, and then it folds back down into the audio spectrum, and you actually get um, weird sounding tonalities of your instruments. And he did this demonstration where he took like a clav- um, clavinet um, virtual instrument and played mm-hmm. the part on like a 44-1 session, a 48 session, and then a 96K. And it was just like an, a completely audible difference in the instrument and the sound. That's crazy. Yeah. So- you all, I, I always thought, okay, it's sampling. It's sampling some it's with a virtual instrument. It's all samples. So I just assumed that you know the highest rate that the samples would be at was like. Well, 48. this I think this was one that like generates the instrument as opposed to just being playing oh. back a sample of it. Gotcha. But um, but with a guitar amp too. I mean, you know, I know that you know they'll stick a speaker emulator, a speaker emulator on there. Uh, so that may actually roll off some of the highs. But just something to check out, Rockstars, listening to this. If you're doing any virtual guitar amps, try playing a part um, in a session at you know 41, 48, and 96, and just see if your guitar sounds way different when you play it back or bounce it down. So just thought I'd throw that out there. Yeah. Considering how much effort you're going through trying to run the laptop, you're probably hating me for telling you to run your sessions in 96 right now. No, but, so uh, actually, it's, it's pretty thing. messed up. Yeah, this laptop, I, it's a 2016 macbook pro one of the newer ones and it's so much more stable than my studio computer was with 10 so no i'm loving it uh haven't had i don't get any cpu errors and offline bounces just killing it so it's nice. no i think it, it could probably handle 96 pretty well all right cool know. well let me um let me ask uh, another question and then we'll take a break come back in for the jam session um your band uh the great heights band and your recent record, Rad Pop, it's um, is that out now or is that about to come out? No, it comes out April twentieth. Okay, well, that, it'll be after April twentieth, probably when the podcast comes out. So, well, it'll be out by now, by then, and I'll throw it into the YouTube playlist as well. Cool. Um, and a reminder, rock stars, I put a YouTube playlist which is in the show notes. A link you can just click on that, and you'll be able to go listen to a bunch of examples of Eric's great music. Um, but this particular record, just in general, you know, this kind of um, pop punk sound, uh, an element of rad pop that I heard is it's super tight playing. Everything's very precise and punchy and tight, and there's not a lot of junk going on, you know? Um, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about, you know, how do you get all those instruments to sound so focused? What's your approach towards production like that? Uh, what comments would you like to make about producing that kind of music? Yeah, I mean, I try to, especially with, you know, such dense and yet tight product. Thank you so much, actually. That's a great compliment. Um, You're welcome. But with with such dense but focused productions, I try to, I try to be as, uh, do things with as much intent as possible. You know, I make a lot of my decisions committing while tracking um, with very specific intent. Um, you know, I know that this guitar sound is going to sound like this because... I have this other guitar sound that has to fit just like this. And I know that, you know, this drum for the, these drums, we're going to use this snare because, you know, otherwise, because this other snare would be way too fat and take up too much. You know, I just, I try to be very, very conscious of all the decisions I make. Um, 
but uh yeah thank you that was a really fun record to make it's we uh i think with in the baltimore music scene a lot of bands if you're if you're a rock band that plays a little bit faster you automatically get typecast into the oh they're a pop punk band right but we we uh you know, we, we definitely have some pop punk songs on there, but we're trying to kind of break out of that mold and be a little more pop rock kind of in that realm. And if you, once the record comes out, if you listen to it front to back, you'll, there's, it's pretty eclectic. There's kind of something for everyone. There's a lot of piano driven stuff. There's fast songs. There's slow songs. There's trippy Nirvana sounding songs. Yeah, there's some like acoustic sing-along stuff in there too, didn't you? Yeah. I, it's, it's kind of all across the board. So, um, we, we created the genre rad pop to just be like, this is what we are. Yeah. Uh, it's rad pop. Don't try to label it. Don't think about it too much. It's rad pop. It's all, you know what I'm saying? I, I like the video. I think there was a video that was kind of like a, a teaser for it. It looked like an infomercial for a soda, can of soda or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's our mu- our new music video for a song called Better Things. Um, and yeah, the premise of it is that we created a fictional energy drink called rad pop. Um, I, <laughs> I made a bunch of uh, tin foil adhesive labels and put them over top of tiny cans of Coke. And, uh, we had this fictional energy drink that when you drink it, it gives you powers or it makes everything taste good or it gets stains out of shirts and whatever. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I need to get the trademark on that one and, uh, you know, go into real production soon too. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe that's a new merch item for us. <laughs> um, all right, dig it. So let's take a, let's take a break for a sec. We'll come back in for the jam session, and I'm just going to keep digging into questions about recording many different instruments um, and what advice you want to have on those. Rockstars, if you're digging this and you want to go listen to Eric's music, again, you'll just find a, a link right in the show notes. If you're on your mobile device, just click through or go to rsrockstars.com. And uh, you can just click through and just go listen to a bunch of the tracks. And then I'll throw in this reminder too. If you're interested in learning more about mixing yourself, please go uh, feel free to take my free mixing course where I teach you over two hours of videos on how to mix using stock plugins and any DAW. It's at mixmasterbundle.com. Go check that out. And I'll see you guys in just a second for the jam session. Roswell Pro Audio brings you microphone design that is out of this world. Endorsed by a growing list of artists and producers like Phil Collin of Def Leppard, Ross Hogarth, who's recorded Van Halen, Ziggy Marley, and the Doobie Brothers, and Supadupes, working with Drake, Mary J. Blige, and Eminem. These are all rock stars that have discovered just how great Roswell microphones sound. Check out the Mini K47, which uses a capsule modeled on the one in the vintage U47 at a street price of only $299. Or the beautiful Delphos condenser microphone with a capsule tuned like the vintage U67 with great clarity and far lower noise at a street price of only $899. In fact, you are hearing my voice right now on the beautiful Delphos microphone. These mics are carefully crafted by hand and immediately feel good even before you plug them in and hear how great they sound. These are well-built microphones that will last you and your studio a lifetime of great recording. Check out more audio examples of these awesome mics at roswellproaudio.com. Hey, rock stars! We're back now for the jam session. My guest today is Eric Taft, joining us from Baltimore, Maryland area. That's where you are, right? I'm in Beltsville. It's like College Park, where University of Maryland is. Oh, dig it! All right, cool, man. Um, and uh, we're about to jump in for the jam. Are you ready to jam? 
Let's jam. All right. So uh, once again, um, rock stars, I'm I'm sort of deconstructing my own podcast outline, and of course, I'm just going to keep asking cool questions about recording stuff before we get into any of the usual jam session questions. But um, we were just talking about producing and recording Rad Pop. Um, one of the things that was very clear to me listening to that record is tight, punchy drums. So talk to us about what you've learned about recording really tight, punchy drums. And I will preface this by saying I listened to you know those you know, rewind a number of years when you were doing your YouTube cover videos. And I do feel like I heard a really nice progression from, you know, the discovery process of some of your earlier tones versus what you're doing very intentionally producing a record now. And I, and I feel like I heard you learn some really great techniques. So what can you share with us about what you've learned about recording and mixing killer sounding drums? Yeah, thanks so much, man. I I take a lot of pride in my my drum recording process. Um, yeah, like those those early records, those early recordings, especially with the covers, it was just like that CLA drums plugin, putting that on every drum, and it was nice. like sounds pretty good. And then you know it was kind of like a set it and forget it thing for me. But now I've moved on. I'm very very um, intentional with my snare drum choices, cymbal selection, tuning of toms, tuning of drums. That for me is the is the biggest battle. Um, and if you get that right, you're like 80% there. So these um, are choices before you're even hitting record. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm walking around the room. I'm hearing the snare in different. I have two positions of my room that I really like to put the kit, but it's not a fixed thing. Sometimes I'll like... If I if I'm feeling a little stale with my drum sound, I'll I'll walk around the room and hit a snare drum while I'm walking around a room and listen to it in different spots. Interesting. And find the spot where whoa, it sounds really cool in this corner for some reason, and then I'll just move the rug, set set up the kit there, and we'll go for it. That's cool. Um, yeah. Um, I like to let's see. My favorite snare that I have is a DW aluminum snare it's 14 by six and a half and there's something about that snare it's just it's killer it's so easy to just dial in set up and get a great sound um a big part of my snare sound is the head i use uh remo controlled sound heads they're low fuss they when they ring it's a it's a very tasteful ring um i've learned to love snare ring i've like early starting out i was just like no kill all the snare ring we just need that attack that's all we need blah 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 and it's you kill all that and you lose a lot of personality in your snare, especially if you get really nerdy and you're tuning it to the key of the song. Uh, you, you're losing a lot of that vibe of like, oh, there's a real drum in there. Someone's playing that. Yeah, interesting. So that reminds me of the times where I've tried to line things up too much in Pro Tools. You know, once you learn how to do that, you're like, oh, wow, I could just move this, scoot this, do that. And the other thing, get everything perfect. And then all of a sudden, when everything's lined up, everything just disappears into each other and you don't yep. hear it. So that's an interesting thing for you to describe that with the snare drum. It's like, on the one hand, I feel like there is this lesson to tune the drums to the song. But on the other hand, it's interesting to think that if you tune it too much and tighten it too much, the snare actually just disappears and now you can't hear it. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of kind of erring on the side of tuning my snare pretty low. Um, that's I, I find that, I mean, I'm also the first one to boost like 180 200 on my snares i just love that present ass on my snare you yeah, know what i'm saying yeah. um so the next thing i uh as far as miking i have a, a transformerless 
57. It's the tape op mod that I use on the snare top. Um, toms are either E604s or if the um, if it's like really tom heavy and really uh, cymbal heavy, I'll mm-hmm. use the 604s. But if the drummer is uh, has good separation of cymbals and toms, I'll, I'll switch to uh, condenser mics. So the, e, the E604s are dynamics, right? Yeah, those are the the Sennheiser, the clip-on guys, and those are really that's what I used on the Under Oath record because um, Aaron's Aaron had two floor toms and a rack tom, and he just beats the shit out of his cymbals. So nice. the 604s helped for isolation purposes, um, you know, cutting down on cymbal bleed. If I if I had used condensers, it just would have been a nightmare. Right. So, um, but if it's you know if if there's the occasional tom fill or something like that, then I'll use. Uh, condenser mics and that i find that that's nice and snappy i used to use my octava um, mk12s for tom mics because they're really inexpensive small diaphragm condensers yeah and they do have a really nice sound when you just hit the tom but sure enough if you hit a cymbal near them they're just screaming and so i'd have to go through and like manually clean out every single tom hit to get the cymbals out of them yeah it's kind of a nightmare It, it can be um I got. I'm a big fan of the Arlex, um, the foam expanders. Those things that you wrap around the mics um, mm. to, to cut down on cymbal bleed. If uh, if a drummer's got good enough hi hat to snare distance, I'll put the a giant one around the snare mic, and that really really helps. Um, and then after that, I room mics. My room. I'm a huge huge fan of my drum room um before i moved in here it was it's been a studio since 2002 i moved in in 2013 so before then it was uh it was built by an engineer called named brian mcturnan who did uh he did a thrice record here he did uh circus survive here he did um um let's see and then matt squire the producer i work with now moved in here and did all time low panic at the disco boys like girls um yeah, so there have been a bunch. It's just it's a fantastic drum room. So we're we're a big fan of um, room mics out in front of the kit. I use Cascade Fatheads with the Lundahl transformers um, oh, yeah. as my in a bloom line pattern for my room mics. Um, I actually when we were doing Rad Pop, I had Neil, our other singer. Um, he was I was kind of showing him the ropes of engineering and how to run Pro Tools and how to you know get. I was having him succumb to my nerdiness. And, uh, so I, I gave him a 414 and I was like, Hey, Paul's going to play the drums, walk around the room and put this somewhere that you think will sound cool. And then I patched it through an EQ and a distressor. And I was just like, go for it. Just do what you think. And so I just gave him a mono channel. I was like, this will be my effect mic. It'll be, you know, my wild card. And he put it in the corner of the room behind this cabinet and it sounded awesome. And then we <laughs> hit it. I, I had to like fact check his EQ because he was irresponsibly shelving some stuff. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so I had to like make sure it was actually usable. And then we just, uh, I think we went 10 to 1 or 20 to 1. Maybe we nuked it on the distressor. Yeah. And it just like, there's a track on the record called Free. And I think there's a music video for it out now as well that's got the Muppets or Sesame Street characters in it. But uh, there's a drum fill. There's a drum beat at the very top, and you can just hear the room. That's the first song we track drums for that has that. Uh, we call it the Neil mic, and even in all my sessions past, I, I still call it the Neil mic because um, that's, that's great. I, the, 
I like that idea of sort of assigning to somebody else to just go position a mic somewhere in the space. Like, it's like, get yourself out of the equation even. Oh, I love it. Yeah. And he's like, and then he was like, yeah, cool. I'll do it. And he took it really seriously. And he was actually like listening for the places. And yeah, I loved kind of removing myself from it and being like, then listening to what he had done with a fresh perspective and being like, yeah, this is hell yeah, this is awesome. And then it goes back to that point I was making before about collaboration and synergy. And now I can look back and be like, damn, remember when Neil put that mic in the corner and it sounded awesome? That was great. Like I feel better creating something knowing that, you know, my friends have helped me and, or like, it's something that we created together and it wasn't just me delegating and calling all the shots. Super cool, man. Let me dig in and get you to over-explain a couple of things for the rock stars. Um, First of all, Describe what your 57 mod was. Okay, so the 57 mod, I, I think it's I think it's just called the tape op mod. Um, I you just remove the transformer. So you solder the the pins directly to the capsule. Um, to do this, you uh, have to detach the capsule and um, desolder those contacts. And then you boil the barrel to soften the glue up. If you've ever looked inside of a 57 barrel, that sounds, that just sounds cool. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. Oh, you have to remove the pins too. Don't forget that. And then desolder all that. And then, um, yeah, the inside of a 57 and 58s too, it's just filled with glue. And so the, there inside of that glue, there's a transformer suspended in it. So it doesn't move around. So you, you heat up boiling water drop the barrel in and it softens up that glue. And then you take needle nose pliers, you pull the transformer out and then you solder the pins directly to the capsule. And what that does. So the transformer is essentially just an output boost. Mm-hmm. It, you know, keeps it so that mic is usable in live applications. And so you don't have to crank the gain a whole lot, but what it does, I, I mean, maybe this is just superstition. Maybe it's just the placebo effect, but I really think it, um, it kind of scoops the mids out a little bit. It feels assier in the low end. It feels uh, brighter and bitier in the top end. And it makes it perfect for snare drum. There's something beautiful about it. <laughs> okay, cool. I like that. And of course, dropping the level slightly is going to always be welcome for a snare drum top mic because oh, you never yeah. want too much gain there. You don't want any overs. Um, and then yeah. Rockstar's... Um, I imagine that mod is pretty easy to find if you just type in, just Google like 57 mod tape up and you'll, and you'll find it really easily. Yeah. If you've got a spare 57, I, I can't recommend it enough. It's amazing. Yeah. And 57s are not too terribly expensive if you just want to dedicate one like that. All right. So, um, let's, let's ask the next one. Tell us what a Blumline pattern is and how you use that with those fat heads. Yeah, so a Blumline pattern is a stereo miking technique where you, if you use two microphones in figure eight pattern, um, you essentially position them so they're kind of shaped like an X. So one is picking up the front and back of one axis of your room, and then the other one is at a, uh, let's see, at a 90 degree angle, the opposite direction, picking up the opposite angle of your room. So you're getting... I mean, it's hard to describe without just seeing it, but you're, the idea is that you're picking up a full 360 degree image of the room. So when I'm tracking yeah. drums, I'll put my bloom line, uh, the fat heads. Um, if you get the pair, usually they come with the bloom line bar, which is super helpful. Um, just make sure you have a stand that's hardcore enough to support it. By the way, 
uh, I imagine like a world where there really is a recording mecca somewhere, you know, a city yeah. where where engineers need their own place to go out for drinks and beer, and it would just be called the Bloom Line Bar. Oh, it'd be amazing. Or maybe just the stereo bar, even. The stereo know? bar, yeah, yeah. man. <laughs> <laughs> so good. I've I've done I've used Bloomline uh with the Fatheads on overheads once, and I had to um I did this crazy thing. I like attached a boom arm to my really like hardcore weighted stereo stand to get it up high enough. And it was just it, I I don't know. I, there's a reason I don't do it because it's so much work and it didn't sound that great. But. Right. Cool. So, um, so let's just to reiterate again, rock stars, the difference between a, a pair of fathead figure eight mics in Bloomline as opposed to what you might be used to if you just had a pair of mics. You know, if you set a pair of mics and they're sort of like ones on the left side of the room, ones on the right side of the room, that would be your space pair for room sounds. But the bloom lines are both mics right together, sort of in the middle or in one spot, so they're not spaced out from each other. Mm-hmm. You sort of stack one on top of the other with their axes off by 90 degrees. Right, so, so that one's sort of looking towards the left of the drum kit, one's looking to the right of the drum kit. But right. then the backs are also looking left and right to the back of the yeah. room. All right, cool. So um, let's take the next instrument that goes with, with drums a lot. Let's talk about bass. Uh, All right. How do you get the bass? to sound both punchy and deep on your records? So, actually, the Rad Pop process was totally different. Um, we uh, Half the bass tracks on that record were cut by our bass player at his house and then sent to me to edit and drop in. But when I'm tracking here in my studio, we do... Um, I go direct in on a Shadow Hills monogamma mm-hmm. and hit that with a distressor. And then next in my chain, I, I mentioned it, I mentioned the CLA drums, but I use CLA bass. Yeah. That thing is sick. I know. The sub is insane. Yeah. Just like for treating a DI signal. Oh my God. It's so cool. Um, and it's got built in growl and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. Really I mean, yeah, the different, the different gain and uh, distortion circuits in it are so sick. And then after that, I go to waves guitar. They're uh, <laughs> the activator amp on the, the, um, Cool. Bass plugin, cool. the bass amp. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's for me personally. That's the majority of my bass sound um, is CLA bass into that, and then uh, treat it differently as needed. But that's cool. Well, I like it, and I imagine that you arrived at that just through experience. Like you tried stuff until you finally were like, "This sounds great," so I'm going to keep doing this. Yeah, and I like. I mean, I use the bass amp plugin as a mixing tool. I rather than you know tracking with an amp and then having you know, being stuck with the obvious for the most part, I'm a big fan of just committing to sounds, but for yeah. bass, it's such a like low end in a mix is such a wild card and it can change drastically as you add to it. So I like having the settings of the bass amp be malleable as I'm creating and stacking on top of it. Totally. Really great insights. So I'm glad you brought that up because I think that is really the key of um, getting that right in the way that you're dealing with it. And also a reminder, rock stars, just getting that like a really great sounding direct signal into your recording. Um, the direct is often the most versatile thing that you can then turn into a guitar amp, you know, kind of point it in the direction that you need for the final mix. At least that's my, my experience with it. Yeah. Whereas, like you said, committing to a bass amp in the studio is a lot more challenging. Um, it's harder to make it go a different direction later. It's also often just really hard to 
make accurate judgment calls on the low end in that tracking stage that carry all the way through to the final mix. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, cool. So then let's go to um, electric guitars. How do you record kick ax- kick-ass electric guitars? Kick-ax. Kick-ax, um, yeah. <laughs> so I have an orange closed-back 2x12 cabinet with uh, V30s in it, and that's my favorite guitar cabinet. Um, I love to use... I use uh, the trans... Actually... I recently switched. I was using the Transformerless 57 a lot on guitars, and then I switched to just a regular old 57 paired with either an AKG 414 or I have a Telefunken AK 47 that I know is it's predominantly vocals and acoustic guitars or whatever you want to throw at it. But when I bought it, I was like, you know what? I'm going to try it on everything just to, so I know what it sounds like. And right. it sings on dirty electric guitars. It is insane. That, that, that mic sounds so good. Nice. Yeah. So, um, and then I usually, I, I don't do more than two mics on a guitar cabinet. Um, and then I run those into the Apollo, just the Apollo pre's, but I use the API vision channel strip. Um, and I EQ there, EQ filter, compress, do whatever I want. Um, to get them, you know, make sure they're one, they're in phase two, make sure that they're, uh, sounding great with each other. And then I run those to aux inputs in pro tools. Um, and then I sum. So when I actually print guitar tracks while I'm tracking, it's a combination of both mics being summed down to one audio track. And then what are you using to do the summing? Sorry, are you using something analog or are you doing that inside of Pro Tools? No, it's, it's, all, it's all inside of Pro Tools. So like, uh, I'll, let's say I open up an aux track for each of the mics on the guitar cabinet. And then, so that'll be, you know, mic line one, mic line two. And then the outputs of those will be like bus one. And then the input of the track I'm summing to will be, you know, that bus. Now, so, do, do we all have to watch out for latency or any of those kind of issues? Anything you want to warn people about? Um, I mean, as always, yeah, you do have to keep an eye out for latency. Actually, recently, when I've switched to my laptop, I've noticed latency has been a little bit more of an issue. Um, But I haven't had, because I'm doing all the EQ and compression like within the Apollo before I even hit the uh, track, latency is not too much of an issue. Um, Can the Apollo bust the stuff for you? Is that what you were just saying? No, I bust it uh, in Pro Tools. In Pro Tools, okay, cool. Yeah. Well, so Rockstars, I will offer this one bit of advice, and I have to remind myself to do it all the time. Put on headphones, grab the instrument, try it yourself, because you can tell immediately that the latency is screwy when it's you the um, talking on the mic or playing an instrument or something. And there's a lot of times where an artist, especially one who doesn't have that same experience, will you know, spend a bunch of time struggling with it and they didn't even realize that the latency was on, you know, like, or they're like, why is there an echo? And you're like, there's no echo. Cause you're just right. hearing it and you're in the control room, you know, but there totally is. Cause this, cause maybe you're running it through a master bus and you left some plugins on there and forgot to disable it for overdubs, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, totally. I actually, so I usually, we, uh, I keep all my guitar heads in the control room and then I run a speaker cable through the wall out to my live room. So I, the guitar player is usually in the control room with me, um, which helps so much for hearing, for dialing in tones. Yeah, um, totally. I, 
regardless, even if I'm cutting clean guitars or, you know, whatever, I have a set guitar and head that I need to use to dial in my tones because I know exactly how I like it to sound. I have a thin line telly with humbuckers and an orange dual terror. And the combination of those two, that's like what I sound check guitars with and get levels on. And then, you know, I'll, I'll, the guitar player can plug in whatever they want with whatever head we decide to use. But I, that's like my control, if, if you will. <laughs> nice, man. Yeah. Uh, I love cutting guitars in the control room. It does get a little loud. And I think I just talked about this on the last podcast episode too, but I'll keep a pair of earmuffs up on the console so that when I'm sitting that much closer to the speakers, you know, if we're going to do a number of guitar takes, once I've judged the sound, I'll, I don't need it to be so loud in my ears. I'll just throw my headphones on and work like that. The only problem yeah. is then when people talk to me, I can't hear what they're saying very easily. <laughs> That's all right. It's not time for talking. It's time for rocking. All right. Yep. So uh, let's <laughs> let's jump to acoustics. You also have some great acoustic guitars on um, Radpop. Talk about how to get acoustic guitars that don't sound muddy or harsh. Yeah. So um, in the middle of rec- – actually, when we were writing for Radpop, I um, – I bought one of those, uh, the blue hummingbird mics with this, it's a small diaphragm condenser with the, the capsule that swivels 180 degrees. Mm-hmm. And, uh, cause I was playing a lot of the acoustic guitars myself and engineering them. So I would put that, you know, in front of the guitar and be tracking in the control room rather than in the live room. And, uh, it's just so helpful to, you know, play a chord, swivel it play another like listen to it in the headphones as it's going to sound um rather than having to like pick up and move the mic around a whole bunch and you can just swivel the head and just work with microscopic adjustment adjustments um i used and, to and do you're listening into the headphones you're kind of making a a real-time judgment call based on what you hear in the headphones yeah absolutely now do you find that you have to be carefully selective about what headphones you're tracking on then if you want to make those calls well um, not typically, usually I always track acoustic guitar with a Vic Firth isolating headphones just because of click bleed. Um, I've made the, the same mistake too many times where, right. you know, <laughs> great acoustic take and then you mute the click track in Pro Tools and you can still hear it in the take. Yeah. There's nothing, there's nothing worse than that. Um, so no, usually I'll, I'll do a take and then listen back in the month. Cause I'm in the control room anyways, where I'm tracking it. Cause I'm tracking yeah. by myself. Um, wait, for, wait, at, le- at least for rad pop. Let's remind the rock stars. One of the reasons why you need to completely overdo it when you're trying to make sure that there's no click bleed. Um, for example, you could be cutting a guitar, an acoustic, you could have some other instruments in there. You got the click. You don't really hear the bleed it's in there, but you don't hear it unless it's isolated. But then later on, you try to make a production decision and you're like, let's just mute everything and just go acoustic right here in this one breakdown spot. And that's where you get really burned because you yep. accidentally oh, left just a little bit of click in there, you know? Yep. Yep. I have, uh, so when I was in college cutting, it was a lot of acoustic singer songwriter stuff that I was working on because it was college. And that's what all the college students write. Um, yeah. And, uh, I found that in Pro Tools, the MPC click was best for cutting down on bleed. I don't know why. It's just something about the timbre mm. and how it how it didn't really. Uh, I mean, obviously the stock click track is just relentless and boisterous and just like really loud. But the MPC click I found was less invasive and uh, more resistant to uh, or less more resistant to bleed. Right. Um, 
but uh yeah in my studio now i've got the uh the behringer um multi-track headphone mixers the um 16 channel ones so that the artist can create their own mix oh great and yeah and that's amazing i mean headphone I, i always feel like headphone solutions have been is is the weakest point of any studio headphones always uh you know adapters are crapping out or oh i've only got the left channel or just like it's at least for me personally it's a nightmare i look through Um, the window i'm like see that headphone jack that you're standing on that's why you only have the left headphone (laughs) yeah i mean it's just for me it's always been an issue so i you know made the leap and bought i have four of those mixers and then the the brain in the uh control room but because of that because the artist has separate control over their click level i have to be super on it about you know are you cranking click or like vocalists especially vocalists will crank their vocal so much that it'll start feeding back oh yeah it's like how are you not deaf like you need to this is your this is an irresponsible listening level that you're tracking that so so Um, i worked with a singer that had to wear a headband on top of the headphones to like press it that close to his ear otherwise we'd get that feedback all the time Oh man. I also find though that if a singer has their vocal cranked too much, they will sing softer because um because they're too loud in their ears. So they right. think that they're singing very loudly when in actuality they're not right. They're not um projecting at all. Yeah, totally. Um well cool. So all right, uh and then um anything about avoiding harshness in acoustic guitars? Is that just mic choice usually? Yeah, it's mic choice and EQ. I, I've I used to do like big you know, multi-mic setups. I would do a stereo pair and then I would do a fathead off axis to get the warmth. And I got some really great sounds that way, but I also, it just made a nightmare for phase issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now I just do one mic and I, if it's, I just make sure the one mic is everything I need it to be. And um, if it's a textural thing, I'm a little less concerned about it. We just want the jingle of the acoustic guitar, but if it's going to be its own thing, I spend a little more time and it, maybe it's not the blue mic. Maybe sometimes I'll use the, uh, Telefunken, the AK 47 or the 414. Um, but yeah, as far as harshness, I just usually notch out around three, seven or four K and, uh, proximity to the acoustic guitar. Nice. Is, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, all right, well, let's go to vocals for a moment. Let's talk about, um, you know, one of the bands you mentioned was, uh, under oath. Yes. And then you also have your own band, the Great Heights Band. Under Oath is kind of like heavy sort of screaming vocals at times. Um, the Great Heights Band is more like uh, a lot of powerful, like you really, you know, full voice belting yeah. it, but, but much cleaner sung parts. Um, yeah. I don't know if that's a fair <laughs> comparison, but imagine that there are those extremes. What tips do you have for us for recording and mixing vocals to sort of handle these different uh, styles of singing? So lately it's, I've, I've been gravitating towards the same mic every time we have a manly reference, uh, cardioid in the studio. And, um, so the under earth record was all, was all manly. Um, we, I wanted to try the SM seven for Spencer's scream books. Um, but the way that the manly was taking him was just aggressive. And the manly has this really nice lean, sound to it so you can stack and stack and stack and stack and it doesn't feel congested or anything it's just everything kind of sits really really nicely and it's got the natural top end that you would have added anyway with uh with your eq Mm -hmm. but it does it in a very 
tasteful and flattering way. So the way that, uh, so my vocal chain was typically, it was the Manly into a Neve 511, the 500 series pre into the Distressor, um, four to one fast attack, fast release. Just you like that Distressor. Love it. Oh my God. Use it on everything. Yeah. So uh, Ivana Manley will have just been on the podcast before this. And then, um, oh, no way. Yeah. And then I just did a, a video at, at Winter Nam with Dave Durr. Um, oh, that's as awesome. Well. So both really cool people and making just incredible equipment for the studio. Yeah, of course. So, yeah, the, the chain for that was uh, lately, it's been kind of the same. I've done records where, you know, for uh, sung vocals, we'll use a traditional, like a tube mic, vocal mic. And then for the dirtier stuff, we'll do SM7. I just did a a grindcore record where the band played live in the control room and the singer was in the, or the band played live in the live room. The, the singer was in the control room with me. They all had headphones and uh, their own headphone mix. And he was just going crazy in the SM7, slammed <laughs> with the distressor. And it was, I mean, for that, it's amazing. The SM7 handles EQ like, None other. Um, well, let me, ask, let me ask you two questions about that. So one is um, arriving at the r correct amount of compression in that tracking stage. Any tips around that? And two is if you had somebody in the control room, does that mean that you as engineer producer, you're sort of sound checking, then popping on headphones for the recording stages? I, I was wearing headphones the whole time, um, which is not preferred when I'm trying to listen to the big picture of everyone playing, but it was a lot of like fact checking. It was a lot of like, okay, we got that take. And then I would, you know, sit and listen to the, how it was coming out through the speakers and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and um, another question relevant to that is, um, do you work in a way where you can solo any instrument during the performing or would that kill the mix for people as well? Um, most of my sends are pre-fader, so I could solo and it wouldn't throw off anyone's mix. Um, I like to keep listening big picture, so I don't, I don't typically do that. Um, yeah, that's yeah, good answer. I mean, I probably I would if the band's performing, I'm listening to the whole thing because that's what we're trying to yeah. get. And then and then you can always just play back individual stuff to sort of inspect the tracks afterwards. Yeah. Also, Pro Tools, you know, I don't always trust it 100% of the time. So I would hate to know that I could solo something and it wouldn't screw up their mix, but then not know for <laughs> sure and still have yeah. it screw up their mix. That's, you know, Pro Tools, we I love it, but it's got its flaws. <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel like that way of working sort of went the way of the analog console, too. I mean, it's like in analog console worlds, it was sort of you know, just a setting where you'd be like, yeah, you just, you can hit solo on any track with your, through the speakers or with your headphones on if you're engineering yeah. and it won't mess up the mix. But once we got into the DAW world and Pro Tools world, it was like, we, we stopped doing that, that technique, that practice. You right. Know? Yeah. Cause you don't want to blow the stereo mix on everybody. Yeah, of course. Dig it. Um, I feel like I cut you off before you finished a thought on, on recording vocals there. Um, yeah, I was talking about, oh yeah, treating scream vocals. Um, for Spencer on the Under Oath record, I, I didn't mix the record, but when we were tracking and when we sent uh, to Ken Andrews for mix, um, nice. all, those, all the scream vocals had Decapitator on them. Um, they were all doubled. Usually what I like to do is if we're doubling vocals, <clears throat> I'll use, I'm a big fan of the Sound Toys bundle. That stuff is amazing. Yeah. So I'll, I'll use 
um, decapitator and microshift on the double just to, if it's just a double, if we're tripling and I'll, I'll, you know, the double and triple will be panned hard left and hard right and hit those with decapitator just to get a nice aggressive depth uh, on the vocal. It's like the left, it's just the whole spread gets nice and crisp in the high end. And then the lead in the center gets hit with like a quarter note delay, just, but very present and clean. Mm-hmm. So you get this, you get this nice just juxtaposition of the doubles being uh, very sibilant and crisp and aggressive. And then the lead vocal is just for clarity and, you know, presence. Cool, man. I like that. Um, And <clears throat> Ken Andrews is somebody I need to have on the show. Give us a little introduction to who Ken is and uh, what his music is all about. Yeah. So Ken Andrews is a, I mean, he obviously plays in a band called Failure from Los Angeles and uh, their productions are insane. Um, when they, they broke up, I guess they're playing together now or they did a reunion tour. But yeah. after that, he was in a band called You're the Rabbit. Um, but then more recently, he's done, he mixed the self-titled Paramore record. He mixed um, he mixed the new Jimmy World record, Integrity Blues. He mixed um, Copeland in Motion. Uh, so Cool. Yeah, I need to get Ken on the show. So shout out to you, Ken, if you're listening to this right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, cool. So let's jump forward a little bit to talk about mixing. Um, you just shared some great tips on sort of pre-mixing your vocals a bit. Um, but, uh, you know, how do you like to approach a mix and how do you like to sort of set up for your mixes? Do you have a, a, a method to your mixing? Yeah. So, um, typically I, I like to start with the drums. Um, I like to get them. I mean, for me, the most three important elements of a mix are kick, snare, and then vocals. Mm-hmm. And so if the kick and snare aren't right, it bothers me. Maybe it doesn't bother the average listener, but it re- it bothers me. You do well um, in Nashville. You could if you let go forgot about the kick and you just did snare and vocals, you do great here. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean my main thing is getting the drums to sit and and then I just work up from there. I do drums and then I introduce the bass and then I I kind of start to mix as I as I track though. I um Make sure that the um, that the guitars are all sitting in a way that I mean the rhythm guitars are such a huge element of the mix as well for me. Um, yeah, I mean I just really just work from the ground up, and then once I get to the vocal, I, I you know probably go back and change everything <laughs> that I did yeah. because the vocal you know. But I mean, do you like have a sort of a a way that you lay out your mixes? Any any basic elements as far as like parallel routing and and subgroups or any of that stuff that you kind of always might approach a mix with whether or not you you end up there in the end yeah sure i do um all my drums go to a bus my bass if there's more than one track goes to a bus all the guitars go to their own bus with a reverb i mean I, i i it's pretty straightforward it's just um you know every grouping of tracks just has its own aux. I don't do anything too crazy. I don't use VCAs. I don't really do anything too crazy. I try to not, I try to not automate if I don't need it. Um, Let the but, production uh, do most of the moves. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, what about uh, stereo bus? Do you have anything that you like to sort of have your mix run through that, that you find sounds great? Um, recently I've been using uh Oh, well, I mean, just a, a spectrum analyzer. It's not not that, that not that that's altering the audio at all, but um, gives you insight into what's going on. Yeah, there's just takes out a, a good amount of the guesswork and makes me feel like I know what I'm doing. <laughs> um, but uh, 
sometimes I'll use Kramer tape or a, or another tape sim on the on the stereo bus, but usually no. I just I try to get it right in the mix, and I don't. Um, sometimes I'll do if just before the spectrum analyzer. Sometimes I'll do a uh, an EQ just to for overarching EQ fixes. What about? I mean, you're doing this um, pop punk, so very in your face productions. Do you find that stereo compression is part of the equation to to bring things forward and sort of bring them in your face, or do you just get that at the track level and the subgroup level? Yeah, I, I mean, um, I do that on my drum bus, of course. My drum bus is just crazy. It's like uh, I use the Slate VBC, uh, the gray, the uh-huh. SSL one, um, and then I use uh, an API EQ to just high shelf it a little bit. And then I use, uh, an L three just to get it as punchy as possible. So it's just, there's my drum bus is kind of insane. Mm-hmm. Um, but as for the, I'll do stereo compression on the mix if I'm mastering. Um, but typically I, I, I want to leave those decisions. If I'm not the one mastering, I want to leave those decisions up to the mastering engineer. Okay, cool. Well, let's, let's, uh, we'll ask the <clears throat> sort of closing questions here, but, um, uh, mastering what, what do you have to say about the mastering process? What do you have to say about how you like to deliver a mix to the mastering engineer? Do you master yourself sometimes? Yeah, so I mastered Rad Pop, um, which you know kind of drove me crazy. I I would have liked to have had other ears on it, but it's a great day. Though. Thanks, man. I really appreciate that. I, I when it comes to producing and mixing and engineering my own band stuff, it kind of. Uh, you know, I'm second guessing every move I make, uh, which is not necessarily the healthiest, but I think that just comes from wanting my band to sound as good as possible, but then also wanting my own production to sound as good as possible. Yeah. Um, but, uh, as far as mastering goes, I, I don't like to leave. I think there's a very common school of thought where it's like, oh, well, mastering will fix that. And I think that's kind of a toxic, uh, thought process. I think if you have the power to fix it in the mix, then just fix it in the middle. <laughs> you know, yeah. like if if it's a little bassy overall, don't assume that mastering will fix it. Just, you know, if if your overall thing is just too bassy, then maybe tame your low end on the master. Just do, you know, little things like that. Um, I don't like to ideally mastering would just kind of glue it glue, glue everything together and make it louder like mm-hmm. in a perfect in a perfect world if you're delivering a mix that's all you would need from a mastering engineer yeah yeah um and I, you know there are things that get revealed in mastering sometimes that we're like oh man i kind of wish i could have addressed that and i guess in those situations it could be nice to have that back and forth with the mastering but uh that's probably a luxury you know yeah totally um what about let me let me throw this out at you. What about S's, sibilance on vocals? Do you find you have a way to j- accurately judge that you've got that right as it heads off to mastering? Um is this, I, is it like a method usually, or do you just trust your Yeah, ear? I usually I mean if it's if it really jumps out at me, I'll just I'll DS the tracks individually. Um I just use the stock digi DSer. Um nice. Yeah. I, oh man, I use the stock EQ three all the time too. That's like my go-to EQ. So I'm not, you know, I'm not, uh, I love using that, especially. And I like that you said the EQ three, not the EQ seven. Cause I like, um, or uh, which one it is. I like the well, individuals. It's, it's, I like just a one band and, you know, like just cut some lows or whatever. Yeah. Just, well, I use the seven band version, but it's the EQ three is like the version of the EQ, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. 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 So, um, yeah, I mean, usually if it's really jumping out at me, I'll just use a de but 
I mean, typically what I find, especially with modern pop and modern commercial rock and pop recordings, the they just let those that sibilance rock, you know? Yeah. So I, I don't I don't try to concern myself too much with it unless it's really jumping out at me, then I know it's an issue. Um I think my biggest battle with vocals is three seven, four K. I think maybe my speakers in my room amplify them to a point where now I'm just oversensitive to it in everything. What do you, um, what do you use for monitors? I have Dynaudio uh, BM5s, okay, the Mark cool. IIs. Yeah, and then I have a pair of Genelex as well. But uh, I u- usually use the Dynaudios because I've been working on them for so long, so I'm used to them. Um, they're good rock speakers too. Yeah, they're great. And then I have my sub is a... Uh, just a generic, it's a Samson live sound sub that I nice. just, you know, I've got it dialed in and it's not at all meant for recording, but that's what I use and it's, uh, it's been doing well. It's almost better if it's screwy sounding. It's like, you know, if it's, if it highlights problems, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, cool. So let's just go on a couple of the, the sort of usual jam questions and, uh, and close out. Uh, but I do want to ask you uh, for some resources on the business side. What were we talking about earlier? We were talking about oh, building email lists and and that sort of stuff. A- any other, uh, I know you said that that wasn't necessarily something you guys did, but anything else you want to talk about as far as the, you know, running the studio as a business, any advice you want to share? Um, yeah. On typical struggles, uh, ways to deal with it? Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the things that I started to do was I obviously recognize that uh, my studio has what a lot of bedroom producers and smaller studios don't have, which is a great live drum room. So one of the things I started offering was remote drum recording where people can send me their tracks and yeah. for, and for, you know, you know, hundred bucks a song, however much, depending on how in depth the production is, I will cut drums and send them edited version, uh, send them, you know, a beat detected take, um, and then a wet version with my effects dry with no effects. And then, you know, it's 14 channels of drums that they get recorded in a great room. And I, th- you know, that, I think that's something that, um, showing people the difference that a great drum room can make mm-hmm. with, you know, those, those decisions intentionally thought of, you know, snare sound, drum tuning, that's those aren't the decisions that you really get when you pull up superior drummer or things like that. So, um, I also on my, the part of my website where I talk about the remote drum recording, I've, uh, included examples like with drum, with my room mics in and with my room mics muted. Mm -hmm. So you can really tell the difference of when you have a great drum room and you really like crank the room mics, how much life that can really breathe into your drum recordings. So I, but on a much bigger scale, it's kind of just ign- recognizing what you have as a producer and engineer that other people don't and how you can highlight that in a way that makes you different from other people in your field. So, Yeah, I think that's cool. And I was thinking when you said that too, I was remembering, I was like, you know, I was thinking about all, uh, rock stars listening to this. If you're kind of starting up your studio and you're maybe wanting to businessify it a little bit, I just made up that word. It's a great word. <laughs> Uh, you know, there's a good chance that you coming into this with some skill on a particular instrument. And so that is whatever your instrument is, 
that is another opportunity for you to monetize your studio is to offer that service. You know, even if it's just guitar, you know, you'd be surprised how many people out there can't play guitar as well as you can and might really appreciate the kind of sounds you get and the, the way that you approach a track or drums. Like you said, people don't always have a drum room or maybe you're a horn player and it's like, yeah, I can create horn, stacked horn parts for you. That's that sort of thing. That could be really valuable to people. Yeah, totally. Um, all right, cool. So let's just jump forward to the closing question here. This one's hypothetical, um, but we're going to take the Wayback Studio Machine. You know, you've done a lot of cool stuff. Um, I guess for you, it's been, um, you know, a decade or so of recording at this point, right? Yeah. Um, and if you could go back, take the the time machine back, go find yourself when you were younger, kind of just getting started in this stuff, maybe before you went and did your YouTube videos or whatever, or back in college, and you could give yourself one bit of advice and say, hey, this is the single most important thing you need to know to be a rock star of the studio yourself. What advice would you go back and give yourself? So I thought about this for a while. And I, I think when I was younger and starting out producing bands, I assumed that I had to have the personality of, I'm the producer, I have all the answers, and the band should recognize that most of my decisions are correct. And I, you know, looking back, I'm like, that, that's a, that's a dumb outlook to have. I think, um, I've started, I've adopted the personality of, um, it should be me and the band versus the song or versus the record. And it's like, you know, I don't have all the answers, but if someone, you know, like, let's say my job as the producer is not to know exactly how to fix the problems, but to know, you know, if, if the guitar player says, oh, I kind of think that you know, maybe this part should go like this. My goal is, my role as the producer is to have 10 ideas of how to solve that problem, right? Rather than having the definitive answer, I should know, okay, I can achieve that by this. I can achieve it by this. I can, and I don't know which one's right, but we're going to try them all. We're going to figure it out. So I think kind of, uh, coming at it from the angle of, you know, it's me and the band, trying to make the best record we can as opposed to me versus the band and they need to listen to everything I say. Nice. I like um, that. That's good advice. Yeah. I think, uh, and I, you know, I think that's a pitfall that, um, especially maybe producers with more the reputation can kind of get caught up in that where it's like, well, I did X, Y, Z amazing records. So therefore my opinion is the be all end all of production. And like, well, maybe so, but also maybe not. And I think, you know, you need to take a chance to explore every possible thing and make sure that no stone is left unturned. Yeah, I'm sort of thinking about myself and I'm like, you know, maybe it's a a value add to forget how I made the last record so that each one has to be an exploration with the band to figure it out every time anyway. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as opposed to thinking I know all the answers before we go into something. Yeah. Well, Eric, thank you so much for being on Recording Studio Rockstars with us, man. It's been a pleasure hanging out with you. Uh, really nice to get to know you. And you've shared a ton of great tips on the podcast. So thank you for that. Yeah, man, of course. Thanks so much for having me. Um, let the Rockstars know how they can follow you, find out more about you, and reach out to you. Yeah, of course. My website is erictaft.com. That's E-R-I-C-T-A-F-T. My Instagram is eric underscore taft. And uh, the Great Heights Band Rad Pop will be out by the time this podcast comes out. So head to thegreatheightsband.com to uh, order our new record. We put it out on vinyl too. So it's pretty rad if you're an audiophile and into that kind of thing. Sweet, it's on, uh, yeah, we got it on blue, pink, and yellow. And uh, <laughs> it's gonna, it's tight. It's awesome. So, so you please need to get all three out. rock stars. Get all three. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome, dude. Well, thank you again, man. Pleasure hanging with you. I look forward to meeting you in person. And uh, next time you come through Nashville, come come say hello. Yeah, man, absolutely. All right, dude. Groovy, man. We'll talk soon. All right, man. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RSRockstars to 33444. Again, that's RSRockstars to 33444. And I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lyd Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music.